it a hand clap of praise. Amen, amen. And you may be seated. God is so good. Thank you. All of the time. God is so good. Amen. The psalmist asked a question in the 8th chapter of the Psalms, the 4th verse. He said, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visit him? What a question. What are we in the scope of all creation, the magnitude of the heavens and the skies, all of the galaxies and all that they're in, that he would be so mindful of us and so concerned about us that he would leave the splendors of heaven and Jesus Christ would be born and he would give his life to redeem mankind. There's a song that says something to that effect and speaks to that. It says this, When I think of how he came so far from glory, Such as I to suffer shame and disgrace on Mount Calvary took my place. Oh, then I ask myself the question. Who am I? Oh, who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Oh, who am I that he would pray? Not my will. But thine, Lord, oh, the answer I may never know. Just why he ever loved me so that to an old rugged cross he would go for. Oh, who am I when I'm reminded of his words? I'll leave thee never. Aren't you glad for that? Oh, just be true, and I'll give to you a life forever. Oh, think about it. Oh, I wonder what I could have done or to deserve God's only Son. 
to fight my battles until they're won. Oh, who am I? If you know the course, sing it with me. Oh, who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Oh, who am I that he would pray? Not my will, but thine, Lord. Oh, the answer I may never know. Just why he ever loved me so. That to an old rugged cross he would go for. Oh, who am I? Let's sing the chorus one more time. Oh, who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Oh, who am I that he would pray? Not my will, but thine, Lord. Oh, the answer I may never know. Just why he ever loved me so. That to an old rugged cross he would go forth. Oh, who am I? Oh, the answer I may never know. Just why he ever loved me so. That to an old rugged cross he would go for. Oh, who am I? Amen. 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 Give the Lord another hand clap of praise. When I contemplate that, it leaves me breathless to know what he has done for me. If you would stand one more time, if you'll give me about 30 minutes, I know it's getting close to lunchtime and and all of them things we're thinking about on Sunday afternoon. But I would be remiss if I did not take a few minutes this morning and preach for a few minutes about the awesome sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross so we can live. I invite your attention this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 in your hearing, and then we'll pray. And you'll be seated again. Again, we're delighted to have each of you here. Glad to have our new friends with us. We met at the IMA conference this uh, last couple, few weeks ago. Glad you came with us. They have a business there in Orlando a lot. And just glad they've made their way over this morning to be in service with us. We appreciate it so very much. As always, we're glad to have each of you here. Continue to pray for those who are unable to be here today for sickness and one thing or another. And that Lord will raise them up. Paul writing says this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. I want to preach for a few moments this morning about no greater love. No greater love. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you again this morning for what we have heard so far. We have been blessed abundantly by your holy presence and power that is working in here this morning. As we come to this portion of the service, the ministry of your word, I pray that you not only anoint this, your servant and vessel this morning, that we might speak as your instrument and your mouthpiece. I ask you to help me become transparent before you in this congregation that what is heard here this morning is directly from you and from your throne room. And Lord, I ask you today to anoint each of us to receive your word and we'll give you the praise and the thanks for it. It is in the lovely and precious and holy name of Jesus that we ask it today. And everyone said amen. Amen. Look at someone close by and tell them no greater love and you can be seated. <clears throat> I believe that we can all agree that the centerpiece of our Christian experience and faith is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Without that, we virtually have nothing. In light of the fact that this is Sunday just prior to Easter, I believe I would be remiss if I did not take this opportunity to preach for a little while on the greatest gift of love and salvation for all humanity to experience if they so choose. Amen. The message of the cross is not just another story that you might read out of a novel or a book that might interest you. It is the account of redemption for humankind that altered the course of history for all humanity. Remember, Paul said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In fact, Jesus told his disciples at one of their infamous discourses, he said in John 15, 13 through, uh, through 14, says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He said, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You see, in ancient times, the cross was not a symbol of faith, but of failure, not of morality, but of lawlessness, and not of respect, but of unspeakable shame. In the days of Jesus, the cross was not polished and esteemed. It loomed menacingly on the frayed hem of the city's outskirts, overlooking the garbage dumps, if you will. It was made out of rough-cut timbers and iron spikes, and it stood ominously on the horizon and it was a stoic monument that crimes against the state just simply do not pay. A splintered visage of barbarism, if you will, in the, in the architecture of a renowned civilization. You see, for Jesus, who had no room in the inn at his birth and nowhere to lay his head during his life, the cross was a final place of rest. There he raised his weary, blood-stained head and asked the judge of the universe not for vengeance or even for justice, 
But this great God and Savior, hanging suspended between heaven and earth, He asked for mercy on those who crucified Him by simply saying to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine that, if you will, that those who were responsible for Him being where He was at in the excruciating agony and misery of Calvary, and He would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, there on the cross, humanity received a second chance. Amen. Perhaps that is why for 2,000 years, the cross has captured the attention of artists and poets and architects and yeah, even jewelers. They advertise this now. They've got a real pretty cross. They advertise it. If you look at it just right and get it in line, just write the Lord's prayers in there somewhere. In the cruel brutality, they each see something beautiful and in the rough cut wood, something golden. You see, some people have the false impression that Jesus was a helpless victim of an insidious plot. Oh, but my friends, he was not a pitiful martyr, if some might believe, whose plans were suddenly and unexpectedly terminated by the cross. However, that thinking could not be further from the truth. Such was not the case at all. Jesus Christ's crucifixion had been carefully planned and predicted in Scripture from the foundation of the world. It wasn't plan B because plan A had somehow failed. Written centuries prior to Jesus Christ's physical arrival, many passages in the Old Testament clearly prophesy of the Messiah's crucifixion. And perhaps one of the most prominent and familiar ones is in the 22nd Psalm, which tells of the hands and the feet that are pierced, of bones pulled out of joint, of clothing divided, and of scorning and mocking. And how can we not recall the prophetic text of Isaiah chapter 53? It profoundly describes the misery and the torture and the pain of God's servant's death and his being crucified with sinners. And then as we slip into the New Testament account of events, we find that Peter stated on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and 23, he said that he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You see, Peter informs us that this predetermined plan that God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets that Christ would suffer. Remember, my friend, as a song that we sing on occasion, when he was on the cross, you and I were on his mind. Amen. The evidence is abundant and clear. Jesus was not murdered by an abrupt act of passion. No, no. His death was planned by Almighty God himself. In fact, the Apostle Peter stated it this way in his epistle found in 1 Peter 1, 18-21. Peter says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the... Listen to this now. He indeed was before ordained before the foundation of the world. What was manifest in these last times for you through him, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Can you say amen? Amen. 
So as we step back in history for just a few moments here, my hope is that the temporal and geographical information leading up to the crucifixion will serve to point, if you will, or to paint, if you will, the historical backdrop and draw our attention back to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave all that we might be saved and have an abundant life. Because, you see, I am of the opinion too often too many have strayed away from the centerpiece of everything that we are as a Christian community, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Going to other things and other areas and other doctrines and teaching that has taken dominance and preeminence over the thing that will save us, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, biblical history reveals that after Pilate's verdict, the governor delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Now, the actual sentencing of Jesus took place at the judgment hall located near Herod's temple. In fact, the Gospel of John states it this way in the 19th chapter and the 13th verse, When Pilate, therefore, heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat him in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Kabatha. Now, my friends, step back uh, uh, and, 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 and by, by step, by agonizing step, Jesus walked that lonely road to Calvary on the last day of his earthly life. For only one reason and one reason only, and that is to bring redemption for you and I. So that we can claim and proclaim the healing virtues and the power of God working in our lives. Now, it was unwarranted and unnecessary, but Pilate for some reason felt it was necessary to scourged Jesus. So he had him scourged. Now it's important to know here that there are two types of scourging, and I'm not going to get into all the graphic details. I don't want to just bolting out of the room, or out of the sanctuary here if I get into too graphic of details, but I must tell you enough for you to understand the magnitude of the suffering that this great Savior went through for you and I to know what we know today and experience what we experience and for you to be able to come to Him and find eternal life. There were two types of scourging in the days of Jesus. There was the Jewish type and there was the Roman type. Now, Jewish law specified that the victim could not receive more than 40 lashes. If you want to know where that's at, give it me after service and I'll tell you where the passages are at. However, Roman law was not so humane. Imagine that. A man trained in torture called a lictor administered the scourging. These were professional men that knew how to use the lictor with the greatest and most effectiveness. I will just simply describe it this way without getting too graphic. He used a short circular piece of wood to which he attached several strips of leather. And at the end of each strip, he sewed a chunk of bone or a small piece of iron chain, if you will. Now, this instrument was called a flagellum. And there was no set number of stripes to be administered. And the law, the Roman law, that is, said nothing about the parts of the body that the lictor could assail. He could just wildly swing that thing and hit whatever was there. Now, I'll spare you the gruesome details of this event. However, I will tell you this. In that day, they called this the halfway death. The victim was so traumatized by the beating that they were nearly dead. However, the suffering would not end there. Cruel soldiers who had circled around Jesus, 
Jesus' body that was now bloody, like vultures, moved to pick at the remains. And here's what the Bible said in Matthew. Here's Matthew's account of this scene. It said, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and he reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Hmm. In seemingly raucous sport, they placed a robe on our Savior. And as Jesus becomes the object of their vulgar remarks, each tries to top the others. Each takes his turn, spitting on him, cursing his name, slapping him with the reed, punching him. Upon whom God would soon bestow a name that was above every name. Him at whose name every knee will someday bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Him before whom every tongue would someday confess that He is Lord. But on this occasion, humanity offers this King only spit and expletives and fists. I know it's a gruesome scene. But you need to know the price that was paid for our redemption. In that day... Criminals were commonly paraded through the streets of town, and no exception was made in Jesus' case. Generally, the victims were surrounded by four Roman soldiers and led by a centurion, and centurion, if you will, and was made to the victim was made to carry this six-foot crossbeam that would later be attached to a larger vertical post we know as the cross. However, in the case of Jesus, after the beating and the scourging, he was so weak that he couldn't even carry his cross all the way to Golgotha, the place known as the place of the skull. So Simon, Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service to help him, and as you recount in the Gospels that he helped him carry the cross to Golgotha. And above his head hung a, I suppose, about a 12 by 24 inch what we would call a placard declaring his crime, and it said, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Just for a note of interest, Pilate had this message written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek so that no one would miss the meaning of what was about to happen. But as you might suspect, the religious folks of that day, the chief priests, notorious for straining at gnats while overlooking the important things, objected to the wording and said to Pilate, look, don't, don't, don't say it that way. That doesn't, that's misleading. Don't, don't put it on there that way. Do not write the king of the Jews, but write on there, he said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. On this Sunday before Easter, I remind you that crucifixion was a barbaric form of capital punishment. 
It began in Persia, if that's of interest to you, just for a note of interest. Criminals were fastened to a vertic vertical shafts of wood by iron spikes and suspended above the earth to die from exposure, exhaustion, or suffocation. And I would add to that that death was painfully slow and all so publicly humiliating. Again, I will spare you the descriptive details of this event for now, maybe some other time. However, don't take lightly the horror and the agony that Jesus endured as he laid down his life and they nailed him to the old rugged cross. Let me remind you of one thing before I move forward and wrap this up. There was an occasion when they were coming to take Jesus away to go through this process that I've been talking about this morning, and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. One of the gospel accounts says that when they come to take him, Peter took a sword from a centurion guard and whacked off one of the servant's ears. Peter, being impetuous as he was, thought he was doing a good thing, and Jesus, in his kindness and his mercy, reached down and picked up the centurion's ear from the dirty ground, put it on the side of his head, and placed it back where it belonged and healed him. He told Peter, Peter, put the sword away. If I want out of here, oh, I can get out of here. If I want to leave this scene, my friend, I can leave this scene. You see, Peter, I have at my command and at my disposal 12 legions of angels. And a Roman legion of that day was 6,000 in number. So you, multi you mathematicians multiply that. Now, unless my math, I, I get all messed up. It's somewhere around 72,000. Now, that was the limit. That was not the limit of Jesus, of what Jesus had at his disposal. But he used that number to illustrate to Peter. But to illustrate to Peter, if I want out of here, oh, we can get out of here. All I have to do is give the word, Peter, and there'll be an army marching here, the likes of which you have never seen. And as they were nailing him to the cross, knowing all the time he could have coughed, he could have slipped out through the darkness of the dust that those angels would have created out across the Milky Way and gone. They'd have never known. But helplessly suspended between heaven and earth, Jesus could look down and see the soldiers gambling for his clothes, unknowingly playing their part in the fulfillment of Scripture. And Jesus observing as his gasping for every breath that he, that, that he could get, he made this profound declaration, and I remind you again, as he would push himself up and he would grow weary and fall down again, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Perhaps even more painful, though, was the reflected agony in his mother's eyes as she and her sister, as well as Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene were huddled together and attempting to endure the, un the unendurable ordeal as they watched. And standing there as well was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who later became an apostle, seeing his friend. Jesus managed to gasp out to his mother, Woman, behold your son! As he looked towards his mother, and then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Even to the last, Jesus took care of those he loved. And the Bible says that John took Mary into his own home from that hour and took care of her.
Amen. All for you and I. Excruciating pain accompanied every upward push for breath and every downward release from fatigue. You see, the idea of crucifixion was suffocation, eventual suffocation. Because once you no longer could hold yourself up on your legs, your arms pulled out and the muscles pulled together and suffocated you. Each moment cut deeper into the bone and tendons and raw muscles. Fever inevitably set in, inflaming the wounds and creating insatiable thirst. Waves of hallucination, they say, would drift over the victim in and out of consciousness. And in time, well, there's a lot of other nasty things going on. I'll, I'll spare you those. It is at this point that Jesus knew that he had accomplished everything that he come to do. And to fulfill one last prophetic scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. And there was a vessel full of sour wine that was sitting there. And they filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop. And he put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is, he shouted out, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost and died. With that loud shout, it is finished, Jesus died with an exclamation of triumph on friends. This wasn't a day of defeat. It was a day of victory. It was a day of utter triumph. Because he triumphed over all the forces of evil and all the forces of hell. You remember what he reminded John in the book of Revelations. He said, look here, John, I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He said that as one shouts out for joy. You see, he seemed to be broken on the cross, but he knew that his victory was won. You see, my friends... It's time that you and I make Jesus Christ and Him crucified the centerpiece and the focal point of our life. It is time, I invite you today, to take a few minutes to fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy, it said the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Once in a while I become weary and discouraged, but then I'm reminded I've not yet resisted to blood. I've not yet had to stand and face a court-martial or face a, a, a firing squad because of what I believe and what I stand for. Now I want you to look more intently. I want you to really... Really squint your spiritual eyes into the darkness of that brutal day. I want you to take a real close look at how Jesus suffered. And Peter, who was standing in the distant shadows of that historical day, strained his eyes and this is what he saw. Oh, listen to this now. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. The king of glory did not strike out and lash out in anger and hostility towards those who perpetuated this hideous event. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now I understand that it may be difficult to look at the shame and suffering of Je that Jesus Christ endured on the cross. I understand 
how difficult sometimes it is to see this reality. However, if we will look, our perspective on our own circumstances will never be the same. Once I wrap my mind around years ago what Jesus done for me on Calvary, my life has never been the same. Amen. As the musicians make their way. And my friend, I say to you this morning, if you are weary and you're losing heart, I encourage you to take rest. For a little over 2,000 years ago, Not only the price for our redemption was paid, but healing, as Isaiah said, and with his stripes, we are healed. Take rest. And while you catch your breath, look up to the hill we know is Calvary, up to the one who went before you, the one who pioneered the trail so you and I could follow in his footsteps. Now I must tell you this. Knowing the price that Jesus paid, he will accept nothing less than full, unequivocal commitment to him as disciples of Jesus Christ. Hit and miss won't cut it. Here and there won't cut it. He asks and requires that we give our all to him and to him alone. You see, with those words, it is finished. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. The light of the world closed his eyes in completion and answering the judgment for humanity's sin. And he rests from his work. What indescribable love hangs on the cross and dies to bring sinful humanity, human beings, to heaven? Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he looked at them and said, you are my friends. If you do what I tell you to do. If you will commit your life to Jesus Christ in obedience to his word. Yes, it is finished. The sinless one took on our sins, paid for our crimes, hung in our place. He died that we might live. What an awesome thing. So let's take a few moments and thank him for what he accomplished. And let the reality of Calvary sink more deeply into our hearts into our minds and into our thoughts, expressing to Jesus just how much we really love him. Would you stand this morning? And if you are here today, or you are listening to this message that I am preaching right now via one of our forms of media, I invite you and I encourage you to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender your all to Him in obedience to His Word. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Because Jesus Christ loves and desires for you and I, for all to come to Him. 
The apostle said it is not his will that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to be lost and eternally damned. So I invite you today. Now let me say this to you, church. Oftentimes when we give an altar call and we ask folks to come forward who are in search of Jesus Christ, Folks, some of us that's been around the church for a long time seem to have the mindset that that exempts us. I want to tell you something. You never become so holy. You never become so godly. You never become so heavenly that if the Spirit calls you, you don't, you can't make a trip Amen. down here and get some things taken care of. Amen. Just because you come forward doesn't necessarily mark you as a sinner. We are all sinners saved by grace. Amen? Jesus Christ loves and desires and wants you to come to him regardless of your background, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, regardless of anything in your life. There's no sin. There's no sin that the blood cannot cover. Amen. As we worship for a few moments this morning, if you're here and want to pray, I invite you to come forward. Let's sing.